Welcome to Have You Heard, an IDF podcast. This podcast is a service of the Immune Deficiency Foundation, a nonprofit organization that improves the diagnosis, treatment, and quality of life of people affected by primary immunodeficiency. People living with PI are the zebras of the medical world, and the IDF community is one big zebra herd. Chronic granulomatous disease, or CGD, one of the rare forms of primary immunodeficiency, causes an increased susceptibility to infections caused by certain bacteria and fungi. In today's diagnosis-specific episode, we'll be exploring treatment options, particularly bone marrow transplant for CGD. All right, let's get started. Hi, welcome to the Living with CGD podcast with the Immune Deficiency Foundation. Today, we will have a discussion about bone marrow transplants. My name is Felicia Morton, and I am the executive director of the CGD Association of America, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Dr. Vinod Prasad. He is the professor and director of the Pediatric Transplant and Cellular Therapy Division at Duke University Hospital. I'm also very pleased to say that he helped us a great deal. That's really an understatement. Um, My son, Sebastian, was a patient of his, and we're so grateful to him for uh, the successful outcome of uh, Sebastian. So thank you, Dr. Prasad, for joining us today. Uh, It's my pleasure, Felicia. And uh, anytime I have the ability to talk to uh, our parents, uh, patients, uh, anybody who is struggling with making decisions about what to do with their child or about themselves uh, when you have a really serious life-threatening condition. Uh, If I am able to help, uh, I feel privileged to do that. So I'm happy to provide any information you need uh, and uh, um, thank uh, the IDEA Foundation uh, to be able to host these podcasts and uh, send the message. Yes. And I know uh, because I've been there, well, we've been there, my husband and myself, when we were struggling with one of the most difficult decisions a parent will ever have to make, which is to determine whether or not to go through uh, with a stem cell transplant or to um, continue to uh, live with chronic granitomous disease. Of course, unlike other diseases that are malignant or, or even immune deficiencies with which CGD is. And we'll get into what CGD is. Uh, and it would be great if you could give us an overview of that, Dr. Prasad, because some of our listeners might not know um, exactly exactly why it, it's important to think about these types of treatments and uh, and when and, and where it's best to do it. But but we know how, how difficult it is to make that decision because you can live with it or, or you can go through treatment and both have very difficult um, and, and challenging risks associated with them. So how do parents make that decision and, and why is it important to, to think about this, this decision for parents of uh, patients with CGD or uh, for patients themselves with CGD? Absolutely. I think that's a very important question. Um, I'll um, divide it into two parts. First, uh, uh, let me briefly uh, tell uh, the audience who may uh, know CGD very well or who may not know uh, all the aspects of CGD. So what CGD is, uh, and then we will talk about what uh, options there are for treatment uh, and uh, the curative option 
which is uh, performing a hematopoietic stem cell transplant, also known as bone marrow transplant, or some people will call it stem cell transplant. Um, so I've said this uh, before to you, Felicia, that uh, I've been involved with patients with CGD for almost 30 years. I probably saw my first patient with CGD, a 15-year-old girl um, in England, uh, when I, I was training in England uh, in late uh, uh, 1990s, uh, early 1991, or somewhere in that uh, time frame. Uh, and the patient has uh, had um, three problems. One is uh, she used to get a lot of infections. Uh, number two, she used to have granulomas, and she used to be in and out of the hospital. So if you uh, look at the diagnosis, uh, which is CGD, which stands for chronic granulomatous disease, uh, it conveys uh, three things. It's a disease, it's a syndrome, it's a collection uh, of uh, multiple problems, uh, which are chronic, which means that they are long-standing. And uh, in addition to um, infections, uh, the patients also develop granulomas. Uh, granuloma is another way of saying, uh, medically speaking, uh, that there are certain uh, areas in the body that have developed nodules uh, that could be uh, external in relation to lymph nodes, or they may be internal in relation to uh, the lungs, uh, in the colon, uh, in the kidneys, in uh, any other part of the body uh, where they can then cause uh, compression on vital organs. And so CGD is a chronic condition um, which uh, leads to multiple infections, granulomas, and um, a number of other problems, including uh, immune-mediated uh, problems. Um, for example, immune-mediated hemolytic anemia or immune-mediated uh, thrombocytopenia, uh, which is impact on the blood-forming cells uh, because of immune uh, system dysregulation. Uh, that was the initial uh, description of CGD, uh, but over the years, uh, genetic uh, developments have led to specific uh, diagnosis uh, on the basis of genetic testing, and all of these diseases are caused by a mutation uh, in one of the other genes uh, that lead to uh, this immune deficiency. And um, I don't need to really get into the details of specific genes involved, uh, which uh, that information is available easily. Uh, but I would bring it to uh, uh, this conversation to the idea of treatment. And that is um, over a period of time, um, you can continue to have a reasonable quality of life uh, if you're able to control the infections with appropriate um, prevention as well as treatment with uh, antibiotics, antifungal uh, medications and other treatment. Um, early detection of infection and appropriate and full treatment of infection uh, really improves the quality of life. Uh, however, patients also get, uh, as I said before, immune-mediated problem uh, for which, depending on which organ is involved or which tissues are involved, you have to use appropriate treatment. Uh, and sometimes it can be very tricky. Uh, a lot of these children also will have impact on growth and development, uh, their nutrition, uh, and those have to be addressed as well. However, you can continue to do this supportive care um, for a period of time, uh, but the disease doesn't go away. It always comes back, it always leads to uh, infections and other complications over the years and significant impact 
on the quality of life, on the growth and development of the child um, in and out of the hospital takes toll on the uh, children uh, as well as on the families. Uh, and the only curative option that we have right now uh, is to do a hematopoietic stem cell transplant. Uh, so your question was initially, uh, how do you make that decision of when to do hematopoietic stem cell transplant? Uh, and in my mind, um, uh, the parents have to make that decision uh, on the basis of three really specific um, pieces of information. The first is uh, how severe is the disease? Now, I, of course, in a podcast cannot get into all the details of assessing severity uh, in a patient with CGD. Uh, but if the child has had a major life-threatening infection, uh, it certainly is uh, one of the measures of uh, severity uh, of the disease. So if you have uh, severe disease, doing transplant early um, is uh, an appropriate decision, and we can talk more about it. The second piece um, is to have an appropriate donor. Uh, now, how we define uh, appropriate donor is a detailed conversation, and I'm sure you will ask me more questions related to that, uh, and I'll answer that. So if you have severe disease and you have an appropriate donor available, um, and the third piece is access to a good transplant center uh, where you feel comfortable, confident uh, with the team uh, that they will uh, make the right decisions for your child and would be able to take care of child uh, once you have those three pieces, uh, I think it uh, becomes easier uh, to make a decision to move forward with transplant. Uh, now, of course, it's a very personal decision uh, and uh, your expert physician, a transplant doctor, should be able to help uh, make that decision uh, with you um, in any specific case. So I hope I answered uh, uh, your question in a very long way. I always appreciate your answers because they're so well thought out. And um, I, I learned so much from you, Dr. Prasad. Uh, and, and in our case, uh, Sebastian did uh, fill a lot of those boxes uh, given the severity of his CGD. And yet we still struggled with the decision about when to go forward with transplant. Of course, for a parent, there's never a good time. And it's counterintuitive to think, uh, well, when my child is at its healthiest point, that's when we should go into transplant. And um, so if you had to say, Dr. Prasad, I know it might be difficult. Is there an ideal time for a patient to go through transplant? Uh, there isn't an ideal time. The ideal time uh, depends on um, uh, the specifics. Uh, of a particular patient, but um, as a general statement, it's true for CGD and it's true for any other disease that requires transplant. And that is you need to do the transplant before uh, significant infections have taken a toll on your organs and before uh, your organs have been negatively affected uh, because of the disease. So in the context of CGD, uh, multiple infections can impact lungs because as you know, uh, pneumonia is a common infection in patients with CGD, and that may have, uh, uh, you know, compromised uh, lung's ability um, and its function. Uh, you want to do transplant before that happens. Um, some patients um, may have a negative impact on the kidney because of pressure of one of these granulomas on the kidney. I remember a patient 
um, who actually had to have a kidney removed even before they came to us uh, because of compression on the kidneys. Um, so you want to do the transplant uh, before there is uh, major damage to the organs. Uh, so that's really important. Uh, and then the other piece is that uh, you have to start looking uh, at the transplant option early and uh, start looking for a donor. Uh, the donor could be in the family. Uh, if there isn't a donor within the family, uh, then you start looking for unrelated bone marrow donor or unrelated umbilical cord blood donor, uh, depending on the specifics of the case. Uh, but uh, once you have an idea that uh, your child or you are suffering from severe disease, uh, then waiting is not going to make the transplant outcomes better. Um, uh, prolonged uh, delay will only make the transplant outcomes worse, uh, and that's why it should be done early. So uh, we have transplanted children who are less than one year of age, um, and as well as um, uh, children who are um, uh, uh, older, um, um, going up to 12, 13, 14 years of age. Uh, and I have to say that... Uh, uh, going through a transplant for a one-year-old is not more difficult than one um, a patient who is uh, uh, older. Uh, if anything, I think it's easier to take the younger kids through transplant uh, because they don't, um, in the long term, remember a lot of the uh, difficulties of going through transplantation. Uh, they recover very well. And the younger you are, I'm not talking about very young babies. I'm not talking about premature children. Uh, but I'm talking about, um, uh, you know, late infancy and later on, the younger you are, uh, the more resilient um, your body is uh, to take on the chemotherapy and respond to transplant. So earlier, the better. Yes. And uh, uh, one of the issues that you, you touched on was finding a donor. Um, my husband and I are uh, mixed ethnicity. Um, I am Caucasian, he is Hispanic. And so we didn't realize at the time that this would be a challenge for us uh, in terms of finding uh, traditional bone marrow through uh, the National Bone Marrow Registry. And so um, that's one of the reasons why we decided upon Duke after doing all of our research and meeting with different um, transplant uh, centers of excellence. Uh, and that's a, a tremendously important point, Dr. Prasad, as you said, to, uh, to research the various hospitals that are known for uh, transplanting CGD and um, having an excellent reputation like Duke. So thank you. And we do need to take a quick break. So stay with us and we'll be right back. No matter where you are along your journey, IDF wants to help you manage living with primary immunodeficiency or PI. As a community-empowered organization, IDF can provide you with support, education, and resources to help you cope with a wide variety of issues related to PI, including physical and mental health, insurance, and relationships. For more information, please visit www.primaryimmune.org. Welcome back. I am here with Dr. Vino Prasad discussing transplants for CGD. Thank you for joining us again. One thing that Duke does have um, that sets it apart is uh, its 
umbilical cord uh, program. And could you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, that's that's what we did use um, for Sebastian, and um, it was our one of the only options we had available. Haplo identical um, might have been a, po a possibility too, and and that gets into some of the other decisions uh, that parents have to make or patients have to make which way to go, um, depending on, on what's available. But if you could tell us a little bit about uh, Duke's umbilical cord program, uh, what makes it unique, and also how parents get into those decisions regarding what type of transplant is best for their child. No, absolutely. Uh, I think that's a very uh, critical question. And um, if I could just spend maybe a couple of minutes uh, talking about uh, all the various transplant options or donor options there are. Any patient who needs a transplant, uh, the first thing uh, you want to do is do uh, a test from the blood or from a mouth swab called an HLA typing. Um, HLA stands for human leukocyte antigen. Um, and once you have that result on a patient, uh, then um, you can start looking for potential donors. And if you have uh, other siblings, uh, if the patient has other siblings, um, then we would, uh, the first step that we would do uh, is to uh, do the HLA typing on the siblings, uh, and in most cases also on parents. Uh, some patients may be older and they may have their own children, uh, and in that situation, uh, you would uh, do the HLA typing on their children as well. Uh, so the immediate family, uh, you would do an HLA typing. And uh, without getting into too much of uh, uh, the genetics of this, there is, for any sibling, uh, there is about 25% probability uh, that any given sibling uh, will be fully HLA matched with the patient. And there is about 50% chance that the sibling uh, would be half a match or haploidentical match. Uh, so in general, um, if you have more siblings, there is a higher probability uh, of finding um, a matched sibling uh, as a potential donor um, who is fully HLA matched. Uh, but in the United States and in most countries, Western uh, European countries, the probability of finding a matched sibling donor is about 25 to 30 percent. Uh, in certain situations, it may be higher. In certain situations, uh, there may not be any siblings. So um, in about two thirds of the patients, uh, we have to look at uh, other options and we would call that as alternative donor options. And I would place um, uh, those options into three different buckets. One would be to look for an unrelated bone marrow donor uh, through um, international and national registries. Uh, in the United States, the registry is called National Marrow Donor Program. It's NMDP, also known as Be The Match. Um, and it's a federally funded program uh, which uh, has in its registry many million uh, potential donors um, who have volunteered a blood sample or a cheek swab uh, and have been HLA typed. And they are in this registry um, and you can look uh, for an appropriate donor from that registry. Uh, I'll go into a little bit more detail in a, a little bit later about the NMDP part of it, but an unrelated adult uh, bone marrow donor uh, would be the first of the three buckets that I talked about. Uh, the second option is to find an unrelated umbilical cord blood unit. And uh, a little background about umbilical cord blood is uh, uh, when a baby is born, any baby is born, uh, placenta, and the tubes that are attached uh, to the placenta and the baby 
that is thrown out as an afterbirth. Uh, but over the years, uh, research led to a conclusion that there are enough of really good cells in the placenta, a placental blood and the umbilical cord blood uh, that can be saved. And there are enough um, hematopoietic stem cells or progenitor cells uh, that can be used for transplant. Um, so using umbilical cord blood, Duke uh, uh, was uh, the site for the first world first unrelated umbilical cord blood transplant uh, almost 30 years ago. Uh, since then, about 30,000 umbilical cord blood transplants have been done around the world. Uh, and so uh, now there are a number of public cord blood banks that are uh, present within the United States as well as uh, in other countries uh, that have that we can access as a patient's physician uh, to look for an appropriate donor uh, from unrelated umbilical cord blood banks. And the third bucket is uh, what you had mentioned as haploidentical. Uh, so in last uh, few years, uh, we have been able to, we as in the transplant community, has been able to uh, use uh, um, half-matched um, siblings or parents as potential donors. So uh, truly today, uh, I feel so fortunate in the uh, being in the field of transplantation uh, that we can almost always find a donor uh, for a patient who needs a transplant compared to when I first saw my CGD patient, uh, that patient did not have any uh, siblings and transplant was not even an option. Uh, and I don't know how she's doing now, 30 years later, uh, but uh, it's highly unlikely uh, that uh, transplant would have been done for her uh, by now. So uh, those are the three buckets. Uh, you have the option of using an unrelated bone marrow or an unrelated cord blood or a haploidentical. Uh, the data for unrelated cord blood and bone marrow transplant, uh, unrelated uh, bone marrow transplant is excellent. Uh, the data for haploidentical uh, is still maturing, so um, it's a little bit difficult to say. Uh, but uh, in any given patient, uh, we have a number of uh, options and we should uh, find the best donor uh, and use the best donor uh, for transplantation. Agreed. And uh, thank you so much for that overview of the options available to patients. And, and not every option is going to work depending on the match. But think. Thank goodness for the advances in medical science to get us to the point where almost every patient can have uh, access to a donor. Um, certainly, Sebastian had had an interesting mix given my background and uh, you know my relatives hail from Finland and Austria and Lithuania and my husbands are from Costa Rica. I, I, there are very few matches, you know, I think in in the registries that would that would uh, have that combination together. So we were very relieved to know that we did have um, an umbilical cord match that would work for Sebastian. And uh, we didn't talk about gene therapy. Many in our community, in our CGD community, are thinking about gene therapy. Um, there have been some advances uh, in the last few years. There, there um, have been clinical trials and, and wanting to know your thoughts on, on that as an option as well for our patient population. Uh, absolutely. Um, I'll come to gene therapy, but uh, as you were talking about Sebastian, I uh, sort of remembered something about umbilical cord blood, and I thought uh, just talking a little bit more about that uh, would be helpful for the audience. And that is uh, that when you do umbilical cord blood transplant, uh, the need for HLA matching um, is um, not 
as stringent as you would uh, need for an unrelated uh, bone marrow transplant. And that's why uh, we are able to uh, find an unrelated cord blood almost for everybody, uh, despite having, um, you know, the mixed uh, ethnic and racial uh, background. Uh, and even for, um, uh, for um, the most complex uh, ethnic situations, uh, I think there is a more than 90% chance of finding a suitable cord blood unit um, uh, for a child uh, with any diagnosis who needs a transplant. Um, so umbilical cord blood, we have uh, significant experience at Duke uh, and uh, certainly uh, feel very comfortable uh, in using uh, mismatched umbilical cord blood uh, if that's the best uh, option that there is. Um, and now coming to gene therapy, just the concept first is, uh, uh, as I had briefly mentioned, uh, that uh, on the basis of further genetic research, uh, it's clear uh, that CGD, uh, like many other diseases, is a genetic disease and there is a defect uh, in one particular gene. Uh, it may be a different gene depending on whether you have a, a X-linked recessive type of CGD or you have an autosomal recessive type of CGD, but there is always a gene defect uh, that leads to CGD and many of the other genetic diseases. So it stands to reason uh, that if you could uh, fix that defective gene, um, then it would be um, a therapeutic and it would be curative. Uh, but the concept is easy. Uh, the idea of gene therapy has been around for um, 30 plus years uh, and uh, huge advances have been made uh, in the field of uh, gene therapy in the last 30 years. There are certainly uh, some diseases that uh, uh, have gene therapy that have uh, gone through uh, appropriate approval process in uh, different countries. Uh, CGD is, uh, the gene therapy of CGD is uh, in the early stage. It's not yet approved, uh, but some really brilliant scientists are working on it uh, and, uh, and there is a lot of interest in it. Uh, and I would suggest that, uh, uh, that we uh, certainly consider gene therapy as an option if there is a clinical trial that is uh, open uh, at the time that your child needs treatment uh, or your, you need treatment uh, and then reach out to those um, uh, clinical trial groups uh, and see if you qualify uh, for uh, the gene therapy clinical trial. So gene therapy would be uh, in the clinical trial stage at this stage. Right, right. And it's, it's true that uh, more, more research needs to be done and um, it, it, it's not FDA approved uh, yet, uh, but to look into clinical trials at, at clinicaltrials.gov uh, would be a way for our patient population to, to begin that research and, um, and seeing what is possible. Uh, and we're coming to the end of our time. This has been so wonderful. Dr. Prasad is always talking with you. And so uh, I wanted to ask you uh, some of your thoughts about how families can prepare themselves for this procedure and, and given all that takes from them. And I think one thing I, I do want our, our community to know is that it's really important addition to asking transplant hospitals uh, that they're considering about the successful outcomes that that they have for their patients, what other support they provide to, to care for the whole family. And, and one, one point I'd like to make when I say the whole family is that in our case, the 
thinking was to leave our daughter at home in New York, where we live, with, you know, family here and not uproot her. This is just one consideration to make. Um, but I remember you saying, Dr. Prasad, it's better to keep the family together because, you know, the thinking was, well, we don't want to uproot her and um, we don't want her to miss out on her, her schooling in New York. And, um, and it might be difficult for her to be exposed to all of these challenges that Sebastian's going to be going through. But you had advised us to keep the family together, and we were able to find a school for her. She was um, in third grade at the time in, in North Carolina, and she was such a wonderful part of his um, healing process. And so um, that's just one aspect for families to consider. But I was wondering if you could give us a little bit of your insights on that as, as we close this, this wonderful podcast and, and end us on this you know, sort of hopeful note for parents. Absolutely. Um, I think uh, when you said that I don't want to sugarcoat, I think it's really important. Uh, the transplant is not an easy procedure to go through, um, either for the patient uh, or the fa family. Um, you know, you almost have to commit six months to a year um, of your life to uh, this treatment. Uh, depending on where you live, you have to uh, move to uh, live close to a transplant center. Uh, if you're fortunate to be living close to a transplant center, uh, you could probably still stay at home. Uh, but during the first few months, you really need to be uh, almost within a few miles uh, of the transplant center because complications happen. You have to be rushed to the hospital uh, and minutes matter in those situations. So uh, the first point is uh, that it's not an easy treatment. It requires a lot of thought, uh, not only for the child, but also for the whole family and you have to move uh, and live close to the transplant center. The second um, is that uh, it's not a treatment without risk. There are short-term risks. There are some long-term risks uh, that one has to consider. Uh, and, um, and your transplant doctor should be able to give you all that information. And I'm always available to any patient with CGD or immune deficiency. Uh, anybody who's listening to this podcast and have any questions uh, about uh, how to get more information about transplant, uh, please feel free to uh, send me an email or contact our office. Uh, the third uh, is to try to keep the family unit intact uh, as best um, as you could in any given circumstances. Um, and uh, talking about Sebastian, it was good to have uh, his sister around. So um, he had a support network uh, of not only parents, but uh, the person he loves most, uh, and that's uh, his sister. Uh, so maintaining those kinds of family units, um, I think is really, really important. Uh, number four is that it's a long hospitalization. Depending on your specific case, uh, you may be in the hospital for two months, three months, uh, as you go through transplant and recover from transplant. And during that uh, period of time, at least at Duke, we have uh, uh, set up the unit in such a way uh, that uh, it has uh, uh, the most stringent uh, infection control uh, and other technical um, requirements fulfilled, uh, but also try to maintain some kind of a normal uh, child uh, environment. Uh, so the playroom uh, with specific uh, rules of when and how it can be used uh, there is a place for uh, children to um, uh, in the corridors that they uh, walk and they run and they play. Uh, we have child life uh, support uh, uh, team uh, that uh, helps uh, the children as they're going through transplant uh, 
uh, maintain as much of a routine childlike environment. Uh, so I think those are all really important. Uh, but the most important thing is uh, that uh, if you're considering transplant, consider it early, meet uh, with a transplant team, either virtually, uh, these days that's very easy, uh, or in person, uh, ask all the questions that you have uh, and then make a decision of where to do the transplant and how to do the transplant. Dr. Prasad, it has been so great meeting with you and talking with you today. Thank you so much for all that you do to advance science for the CGD population. Thank you so much for the care and the, the time that you take with every patient to explain the procedure, to help us understand, and for the work that you do for those who are under your care. We're indebted to you, Dr. Prasad, and we are grateful for all that you do and, and for your time today. Uh, Felicia, it was such a pleasure to be uh, with you um, having this conversation uh, and uh, in the process uh, also giving me an opportunity to talk to uh, the families and patients with immune deficiency. Uh, I want to thank everybody uh, at Immune Deficiency Foundation uh, and also at CGD uh, support groups uh, who are uh, trying to bring uh, as much information uh, to the families and the parents uh, uh, as possible. And uh, I, for one, would always be available uh, to any family or parents. Uh, please uh, share my email address, uh, which is my first name, B-I-N-O-D dot Prasad, P-R-A-S-A-D at Duke, D-U-K-E dot E-D-U. Uh, so thank you very much uh, and um, hope uh, to see you another time. Thank you. This podcast is a service of the Immune Deficiency Foundation. If you like our show and want to learn more, please subscribe to this podcast so future episodes will be sent to your device automatically. To learn more about primary immunodeficiency and the PI community, please visit the IDF website at www.primaryimmune.org. And if you have a question you would like answered, email us at idf at primaryimmune.org. Thanks for tuning in.